0: Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington DC and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars. Today's episode features a conversation between AEI's Zach Cooper and Collegiate Network member Nathan Lee of Baylor University. This is episode was particularly fun for our team to record because nathan was in washington this semester with the baylor in washington program so he was able to come here to aei's studio to record this conversation and in it he and zach cooper talk about deterrence and bilateral agreements in the asia pacific as well as ukraine particularly in light of the gop presidential primary if these topics are of interest to you and you want to go deeper you ought to consider applying for aei's 2024 summer honors program where zach cooper who you'll hear from today is one of the instructors the application is open now and the holiday season is the perfect time to work on it the summer honors program is a full week experience for students to come to dc free of charge it's a fully funded program Come to D.C. and not only do you have five days of seminars with scholars like Zach, but you also have lots of other opportunities to network and get further plugged in and engaged with our think tank community here in D.C. So to see the full 2024 SHP seminar offerings to learn more and apply, you can visit AEI.org slash SHP. That's AEI.org slash SHP. And with that. Enjoy today's conversation between Zach Cooper and Nathan Lee.
1: Thank you, Jeff. My name is Nathan Lee, and I'm a junior at Baylor University studying political science, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Zach Cooper, who's a senior fellow here at AEI, who specializes in US defense strategy and alliances in Asia. Dr. Cooper is also a partner at Armitage International and a professor at Georgetown University, as well as his alma mater, Princeton University. Before joining AEI, Dr. Cooper was a senior fellow for Asian security at CSIS and the German Marshall Fund, a research fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, as well as the co-director at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. He has also served as the Special Assistant to the Principal Deputy under the Secretary of Defense for Policy, and then the Assistant Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism at the National Security Council under the Bush administration. Dr. Cooper, thanks for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me. And you know, the the rule in Washington is the longer the title, the less important you are. (laughs) So I was the least important person in basically all of those jobs.
1: (laughs) That's great. Well, thanks for joining me. And when we look at what's happening at the world today, it seems like we're beginning to look at a breakdown of U.S. deterrence abroad with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the PRC's increasing aggression in critical areas such as the South China Sea, and the Taiwan Strait, uh, Hamas's attack on Israel, as well as North Korea's recent deployments to the DMZ and the launch of their military satellite. How would you define deterrence for those who may not know? And what has kind of led us to this point of the failure of U.S. deterrence abroad?
2: Well, you know, it's a really interesting question. So deterrence is the ability to convince your adversary not to do something that they would otherwise do, right? Um, And so uh, I teach a class partially on deterrence theory. um, And part of the challenge is you you don't often know when deterrence is working, right? Because when deterrence is working, nothing is happening. You know when deterrence fails because the status quo changes. Um, So lots of people are saying today, for example, that when it comes to China, that deterrence is failing. But we're not in a giant war with the Chinese. So, you know, it is true that deterrence may be weakening, but it's hard to say that it's failing today. There's certainly some areas, and and you mentioned um, the South China Sea, there's a Filipino ship grounded at Second Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea, which the Chinese are putting more and more pressure on. And so that's an area where I think deterrence is weakening. Certainly questions about whether deterrence is as strong as it needs to be around Taiwan. But for the moment, my view would be that deterrence is holding. Doesn't mean that we should be confident that it'll hold in the future, but I think for today it's holding.
1: Yeah. And what are kind of the next steps that you envision the U.S. should take to step up our level of deterrence? to kind of deter this kind of aggressive behavior that we've been seeing while also bouncing the act of avoiding any possible escalation?
2: Well, it's tough. There's, in my view, uh, you can't usually deter without taking some risk of escalation. Um, And so this this is basically the balance that Washington needs to find. Um, If we don't take some stronger measures to bolster our defense capability, to work more closely with key allies and partners, to put more of our forces at risk in the region, then our main adversaries, including China, are going to watch that and they will be more emboldened to take more risk themselves. Uh, Unfortunately, if we do all of those things, it does increase the risk of escalation. And so, uh, you know, there's sort of two models of deterrence. There's one which is classically called the spiral model where you do more things to deter and then the other side thinks that those are aggressive and then you interpret their moves as aggressive and you end up in a spiral uh, where things get worse and worse. And then the other model is that you do some deterrence measures and actually that calms things down because it convinces your adversary not to act. I think the reality is, is really somewhere in between those two. Right. Have you
1: been kind of seeing us experience that kind of spiral that you were talking about? Because the U.S. has been doing a lot with the trilateral alliance with South Korea and Japan mm-hmm. and the Philippines. But now we've kind of seen the authoritarian regimes kind of banding together like the PRC, Russia and North Korea, having a lot of more trilateral relations. Do you kind of see that as a spiral?
2: Yeah, I think the most clear example of a spiral is probably in the Taiwan Strait where you know the united states is doing things that we think are going to stabilize the military balance in the taiwan strait um the chinese clearly believe that those things are undermining stability um i don't believe they're right but that's their perception and so you end up in a situation where both sides are taking actions that they think are defensive that the other side views is partially offensive and it it I think that is the place that looks most like a security spiral that's very hard to manage. Um, And some of this, ideally, you can do by talking more clearly with each other about what you're doing and why. And that's part of what the Biden team was trying to do when they met with Xi Jinping in San Francisco a few weeks ago. But I think at the end of the day, that that is pretty clearly a security spiral that's been going on for a while and it's probably going to continue for a while. Yeah,
1: And we've kind of been seeing the EU and NATO becoming a lot closer with Indo-Pacific allies, especially due to North Korea and Russia fueling each other's escalatory militaries, such as North Korea, providing armament support to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Russia fueling uh, North Korea's satellite launches. Do you see that as leading to the possibility of an emergence, of a security agreement between those two, or do you kind of see that uh, flattening out a little bit?
2: You know, there's a big debate in the expert community on China and Russia about how China and Russia are going to operate together going forward. And I think if you'd asked this question a year and a half ago, a lot of people would have said, well, look, the Chinese don't really have that much interest in backing the Russians, and maybe they'll peel themselves away a little bit from Russia uh, if the war in Ukraine continues. Actually, what we've seen is I think it's clear now that Xi Jinping if he was going to identify one world leader who he feels particularly close to, it's Vladimir Putin. And, and I think he actually looks up to Putin because there's a lot of work on, on Xi Jinping that suggests that actually he thinks that the main failure of maybe even the second half of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union and the inability of Soviet leaders to stand up firmly for the communist uh, regime. And uh, I think he looks at Vladimir Putin, and he thinks, "Hey, Putin's basically standing up for Russia, trying to bring back, you know, frankly, a dictatorship there." Um, and he he's personally close. So my guess is that we're going to see Russia and China just get closer and closer, which is going to force. Europeans to work more closely with the US and with Asian countries uh, to try and push back. But you know the two challenges, in my view, are they're very different, but they're increasingly connected given how close Moscow and Beijing have become. Right.
1: And kind of thinking about that close relationship between Moscow and Beijing, uh, recently we've seen a lot of GOP presidential candidates debate the idea of pulling support to Ukraine. How? What would be the effect on U.S. credibility for both our Asian allies and adversaries if we were to withdraw?
2: Well, I think we should just ask our Asian allies what they think rather than guessing about what they should think. And having done this a bunch recently, I was just in Taiwan a couple of times, talked with the president of Taiwan about this specific issue. She's very clear. She thinks the United States needs to stand up in Taiwan to help in Ukraine and that that is something that the people in Taiwan are watching. Right. And a key thing isn't just um, what the government thinks in any country. It's whether the people trust us. Right. Whether the people think we're going to be there. And in Taiwan, that's particularly critical because there are a lot of questions being asked. There's a lot of skepticism in Taiwan if you look at polls about whether the U.S. will be there. So my view is if the U.S. basically just cuts and runs and says to the Ukrainians, good luck with the Russians. um, I think it's pretty clear how Taiwanese are going to read that. And you don't need to trust me to believe that. You can just go read what leaders in Taiwan, in Japan, in Australia and elsewhere are saying. Um, So my view, as you can tell, is pretty strong on this, which is that if what you want is to bolster deterrence, um, you have to try and help Ukraine at the moment. Now, let me be clear. If this were a story about the United States having tens or hundreds of thousands of troops fighting day after day in harm's way in Ukraine or in Israel, we would be having a different discussion. But this is a question about whether the U.S. is providing money from from a supplemental, it's not even part of the main defense budget, to go to Ukraine or, or not. And from my standpoint, that's a pretty, pretty obvious answer that we're getting from our friends in Asia.
1: Yeah, and I think our credibility, especially in Asia, is so important because we are kind of at the center of all these bilateral security agreements in That's the right. Indo-Pacific. Do you see the possibility of emergence of a security agreement or multilateral organi- organization among our Indo-Pacific allies in response to the rising access of the authoritarian regimes?
2: I think they're going to work more closely together. We're seeing this with Japan and Korea. We're seeing this through the Quad with Australia, India, and Japan. Um, I don't think there's going to be a formal multilateral security arrangement like we have in Europe, because in Europe, NATO formed because everyone was worried about the same challenge, which was the Soviets rolling through the Inner german border. That was a problem for the West Germans. It was a problem for the French, for the Spanish, for the Brits. We don't have the same kind of situation in East Asia, right? Japan is worried about the East China Sea. Taiwan's worried about the Taiwan Strait. Philippines is worried about the Spratly Islands. You know, Vietnam's worried about the Parasol Islands. Australia's worried about the Pacific Islands. India's worried about the Sino-Indian border. All of the challenges are different. So I don't think we'll see a multilateral security arrangement, but I do think we'll see much more cooperation going forward. And and let's be candid that one of the reasons that our friends are cooperating more together is because they don't trust that the United States is going to be there in the long term. And so part of the logic of them banding together is both that they're trying to keep us engaged in the region, and it's a hedge that if they get a president that decides, well, they don't really want to be there and support these allies and partners, then at least the allies and partners can try and rely more on one another.
1: Right. And what are kind of the next steps that you see the next administration or the current administration to do to prioritize our credibility in uh, the Indo-Pacific?
2: Well, it's tough. The, the Biden team, I think, has done in the last three years just about everything they're going to do in the first term. Uh, I, I don't think there's a lot more energy within the Biden administration to do a lot next year. It's an election year. President Biden's probably not going to be going to Asia much at all. Uh, and so we've seen the big initiatives out of them already. What's what's left to do, in my view, is really on the economic front. So what most of our friends want in Asia is they want more trade with the United States. They want more investment from the United States. And this is where the Biden team is completely lost. Uh, Frankly, the Trump team was as well. And uh, so our friends are being extremely clear with Washington that what they want is trade and investment and they're not getting it. So that's the big missing piece. And I think until we fix that, it's going to be really hard for us to find other ways to engage them and to reassure them that we're there for the long term.
1: What do you think is something that the experts are missing right now when we discuss security and deterrence in the indo Pacific?
2: it's hmm. a really interesting question. So I guess my biggest takeaway would be um, – We're focused a lot on China's rise, which has been remarkable over the last three or four decades. Um, But I think we're missing one other very important shift that's going on on the defense side, which is that as China has risen, um, it has become easier for China to challenge classic American tools of power projection, aircraft carriers, big forward bases, surface ships, all these kinds of things. At the same time though, what we've seen in Ukraine, we've seen in Israel, we've seen in Azerbaijan, is that the price of projecting power has gone up. So it's become much harder to project power. Um, it's, it's not impossible, it's just more costly, right? This is unmanned systems, um, both at sea, undersea, in the air. Uh, and then things like you know mines, loitering munitions, all, all of these innovations have made it harder to project power. What that means is that it's harder for the U.S. to project power, which is a downside, It makes it harder given that this is traditionally what we've done well. But the good part of this is, actually, if China wants to change the status quo in East Asia using military force, it has to project power itself now. So we're seeing an inversion right now, which is that just as China is reaching the point where it's trying to build its own power projection capabilities, those exact capabilities, things like aircraft carriers and big surface ships and long range aircraft, are becoming more vulnerable than ever. And that gives the United States and our key allies and partners the ability to hold those assets at risk. So I think we, we often focus so much on how fast China has risen and, and all of its military modernization, and that's important. But we miss the second change that's occurring right now, which is just as momentous. And I think if the United States uses that second technological change wisely, we can neutralize a lot of the advantages that China has as this up-and-coming rising power.
1: Yeah, and do you think export controls on critical areas and critical sectors such as semiconductors is a good way to be able to kind of hamper China's rise?
2: So the question is whether the objective is, as you said, to hamper China's rise or to limit its military potential. I think it's pretty clear that there's broad support across the political spectrum in Washington to restrict technologies that are critical to China's military advances, artificial intelligence, um, certain kinds of robotics, right, um, advanced semiconductors that go into both of those. The the next step, though, of saying, okay, we're, we're going to hold back, let's say, semiconductor technology that's critical to commercial applications, that's where I think you see a lot of disagreement. We, we just had, um, you know, a House leader, uh, Congressman McHenry, put out a letter a few days ago saying he doesn't want to restrict investment uh, into China. Uh, and certainly there are a lot of Democrats that agree with that. So I think you can make a really strong case for the national security limitations. I think the commercial limitations are much harder to make. They're not impossible, but my sense is there isn't the political support to do a lot of that yet.
1: And for the final question, which we asked to all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college?
2: Oh, a a thousand things. you know, when I was in college, uh, probably the biggest thing that would have been impossible to predict going forward was um, I just assumed that if you were on one side of the aisle, you came into government every four or eight years, right? That's sort of how it had worked when I was in college, right? You you know, you'd had uh, Bush and then hands over to Clinton for eight years, then hands back to Bush for eight years, and then you go to Obama for eight, right? And um, it never really occurred to me, I've now been in think tanks for the last 15 years, uh, that there was a good chance that, you know, depending on your political beliefs, that you might... Be be out of government for quite so long. And, I, you know, I think I got a little bit lucky to end up studying uh, a little bit more academically some of the the work that I do. So it's, I, I like being outside of government and, and I uh, enjoy it and, and have a lot of uh, worthwhile things to do. But but that has really surprised me. Um, and And I think a lot of people that are my age didn't see that coming, especially folks on the conservative side.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cooper.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.